All right, everybody, welcome back to Apex Mind. Adam with you here as always. And actually on this episode, I am pleased to welcome two interview guests. I, I have uh, Dr. Kuva Jacobs, as well as Charles Masuku. Welcome, Kuva and Charles. <laughs> Thanks, Thank Adam. It's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, as I mentioned, this is the first time I've had two guests on at once, and I know you two work together, but have some different specialties. So I think we'll have some really interesting discussions on this episode. Um, let, let's start off. I, I always like to hear people's background, what got them into a learning and support type role. So um, Kuva, since you have the doctor title, let's go to you first. What what got you into learning and development and people support? Sure. So um, my background, actually, I, I started, I did a degree in IT and maths. Um, and during that degree, I I found, I, like I did well, but I still found that there were concepts that I couldn't really deeply understand by the end of it. And I felt like there was a better way to be able to teach this. So I got to my honours year and I started just starting to visualize some of the concepts that I've taught. So for example, been taught. So for example, if you've got the Fourier series, you've got a bunch of um, lines, infinite amount of lines that when you add these lines up, they turn into a standing, um, like a standing line. And I couldn't get my head around that. So then I went, oh, what happens if I, if I visualize this? So I had six different lines and then added them up and then that, created the standing line and you could I built it so that you could switch on and off different things and I did other little visualizations like uh, sorting algorithms color coding them based on you know darkness and then actually displaying how the sorting algorithm works so that you could see um, the difference between the various sorting algorithms um, when you've got a bunch of random numbers and then the computer sorts them into a particular order uh, I then really, I really enjoyed my honours um, and I wanted to keep going with it. Um, so I ended up doing a PhD on that topic. Um, but in my PhD, what I actually did was I built full um, e-learning e e <laughs> um, modules um, that uh, brought a bunch of mathematical concepts to life. So uh, it was different things like I had, you know, for example, um, differential equations, looking at the mass on a spring, um, having uh, different uh, views of the equation and being able to change, use a slider to change um, the different variables and see what effect that would have on the equation. Would it change it from being, you know, increasing in oscillation to, to a damped equation, for example. And tested this out on my students. Um, got a lot of positive feedback from that, and um, and I re really really enjoyed it. If if you go on my um, profile page, you'll see I've got um, a couple of um, uh, articles and so forth related to that. Uh, once I finished, um, I then wanted uh, to keep going in in the learning design space, and this is really back in the day. So everything I built was in Flash at the time. Had to code it all up. Um, I also built an LMS <laughs> it was because at some point I got sick of asking students to hand in their, their assessments when they got to the end of the course. So I figured out how to get Flash to, to save it up on a drive somewhere. Um, uh, on a, I think I had a, a CSV file that it would save the things in. 
Um, one of the things that was really interesting about that actually was, um, I, so I looked at different assessment methods and uh, I looked at, okay, instead of assessing with a pass rate, um, what I wanted the students to achieve was actually competency. So I, I basically said for each question type, you need to keep answering this until you can get it right. So, um, so I'd had, you know, 10 question types and then they go through and then all the ones they got wrong, I'd loop them back and then I'd give them a slightly different version of that question. So different, change the numbers up a little bit and then they'd need to answer it again until they got them all right. Um, the interesting thing about this behaviour, I also timed it as well, is that what I found was that when I looked into the CSV of the students and then doing these assessments, what I found was that the really conscientious students, they didn't want to just get it right. They wanted to get it right the first time every time. So they'd come back and they'd redo it until they got every single question right on the first attempt, um, which is really interesting. And it, it kind of, it makes you think a, a little bit more about how you assess, right? Because for example, if, if we assess um, a student and they only get 60%, does that mean that they're competent, like enough? <laughs> um, or do they actually need to keep practicing? Anyway, just a question. So yeah, so from there, um, I then went, you know what, I don't want to be in academia anymore. Um, I really like a lot of different stimulus. I like, like things to be fast paced. So I stepped out and then went into a commercial role, um, which uh, was actually in a major telecommunication company called Alcatel Lucent. You might have heard of it, it's a global company. And uh, at the time, they were uh, redoing the entire uh, network, telecommunication network inside of Australia, transitioning it from all of the le legacy um, uh, different protocols into a purely IP network. And so my role in that was to write all of the different telecommun telecommunication training, which was yeah kind of interesting. So I got, got thrown into the deep end there, but I managed to swim somehow. <laughs> and then since then, I've worked in pretty much every uh, possible learning uh, design, every sector that you can imagine. Yeah, um, well, you know, I don't know if you know this, but I've worked in telecom for 15 years, too, and I've worked with Alcatel Lucent's products. Uh, I, I worked for Verizon, who's one of the largest ones in the United States and other companies as well. But I, I also, you know, I feel like we're, we're aligning here. I like how you got into a learning role because you noticed gaps in your own learning. You felt that you were missing out on things. And so you wanted to get in and improve this process for other people. And, and I, I feel like I was in a similar situation of what kind of drove me into this originally. So um, not necessarily in an IT world, but that same kind of learner experience where gaps were felt and you, you go in and try to fix it for other people. So they don't feel that same thing. So that, that's awesome. Um, we're we're going to come back to some of those things you shared later in the interview, but I do want to shift over to Charles because I know you, you probably have a, a different story than Kuva does. So what what um, moved you into the the kind of learning and people development space? Very very interesting. So firstly, I must um, thank Serendipity because I literally stumbled into it. 
And I came via the very unusual channel of sales and sales in IT training. So I found similar to, uh, to Kuva trying to cover my own learning gaps and, uh, and discovering what I was most passionate about, about that initial exposure to training. I found IT training um, uh, quite set in stone, right? Very, very, very binary in a lot of ways because of the technical nature of the systems, right? Um, but I found I was more increasingly drawn to the human, to the behavioral side of things, to what was going on with these, you know, I could speak code to coders, uh, you know, infrastructure stuff to infrastructure engineers quite fluently. But what I was most interested in was their behaviors, how they were impacting the people, uh, not so much the systems that they were working with. So that really fueled my, my curiosity. And I, and I think that's one of the things that I found consistent with a lot of people that end up in learning. You have a general and genuine curiosity in, in humans, in human behavior, um, uh, and the various aspects of you know motivation, performance, uh, the behavioral stuff. So that was my introduction. I started reading up a lot on the learning sciences because uh, I really wanted to uh, get a more sound knowledge. And um, uh, I will say here that a lot of Kuva's, uh, uh, so Kuva uh, coined what you might have seen floating around on the internet, which is the uh, pyramid of learning myths. Um, I'm happy to confirm I subscribe to quite a few of those myths in the early stages. So in reading up and educating myself on the learning sciences, that's where I fell in love with it before I started my master's in education uh, at a later stage and, 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 uh, and learning up more formally on the learning sciences. But um, I think that the pathway through sales has probably served me more effectively on the, on the solutions advisory side of things. Because at the end of the day, one of my first uh, mentors in sales told me that one of the, you know, uh, untold truths about business is that we are all in sales at the end of the day, because we're all trying to sell ideas and concepts to each other. And when you can master that understanding of sales, it will serve you well wherever you go beyond sales. And, and, that, uh, and that absolutely did serve me well, because what I found was that in uh, the more uh, I got to understand about the learning sciences and the more passionate I got about the learning sciences, I realized that we've got a lot to offer business within from within the learning sciences. If you look at in, in business, there's a lot of models, approaches, methods that become gospel and you know they take a life of their own and manifest in all manner of organizations and become gospel literally. Um, and they hold this authority that I found um, was missing in, 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 in you know, the learning profession. We have so many great things uh, uh, that come from within the learning profession and the learning sciences that seem to have to contend for a place in, in the language of business. Um, you speak to many leaders of learning today, what they're talking about is they would like a seat at the executive table. You know, if I had a dollar for every time I heard that phrase, and to me, how I interpreted that is, okay, firstly, is what we do as learning professionals solving business problems? Yes, we know that we, we know that we do, but a lot of times we're relegated into a reactive uh, function. Um, but that belies the value that's hidden and locked 
in our profession. So I realized that there's potentially a sales issue here. We should be selling our services better to the uh, to the business, providing a, you know a stronger consultation uh, into the value uh, and and the wisdom of our methods and how they can add business, like solve real business problems and realize real business opportunities in their own right. So I, I spend a lot of time talking about that sort of business partnering side of things because that relationship and the sales um, uh, element that has flown through my career has really, really served me well um, in, learning, in learning and development. And I think that speaks into the synergy that Kuva and I often enjoyed uh, because I really enjoy the relationship side of things in, in, in our consultancy. Um, you know, as Kuva calls it sometimes, the boring contract stuff, the commercial relationships and all that is, is very important. It has its place. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, we're managing relationships, right? And trying to deliver value within the context of that. So yeah, that, that's me in a nutshell. Yeah, I, I firmly agree with the sales piece. You know, I've, I've always said that everyone's a salesperson, like you said, but the people who say they're not salespeople just aren't very good salespeople. <laughs> that must be me then, because I'm always saying I'm not a salesperson. <laughs> yeah, but you know, the, the, the argument would be you, you develop relationships. I, I see you engage people on LinkedIn. You're engaging people in your consulting firm. I'm sure you are selling. You just may not think of it as selling. Yeah, that's right. I mean, for me, it's about, I definitely struggle with the some of the trickier conversations and um, especially like financials, um, things like that. I, I would much prefer someone else to be, to be thinking about these things for me. And I, I feel I'm that someone. there are, <laughs> I feel that there are people who are much, much better at this because, you know, especially when you have the visibility and the exposure to it as well, um, knowing where you stand, uh, what's what's commercially viable too. Um, so I find like I have all these amazing ideas, but does is it actually going to land well with the client or is it just an amazing idea that's never going to get any traction? So having someone who has that, um, you know, commercial background, who understands how people think. And also as you're having the conversations, um, understanding, uh, you know, the reactions and what other people are thinking as you're having those conversations to being able to read them. That is a very, very important skill that, that Charles has. And it goes beyond, certainly beyond what I can do. Um, I'm just a designer. <laughs> I'm happy to stay in my design box. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, we all have our skills and, and that's great because having a partnership where you can, um, you know, leverage each other's talents, I think is very important. But I, I do want to, you know, loop back to Charles because um, I, it, it's kind of uh, coincidental, but I believe based on when this episode is going to publish my most recent episode, I didn't have a guest, but I was talking about influencing senior leaders. And that's something I think a lot of L&D folks struggle with. And Charles, you even mentioned the term and I mentioned it on that episode is um, have a seat at the table. You don't want to be yeah. a order taker or a content factory. And and this is stuff I've heard for years from from tons and tons of L&D people. So, yes. so why don't you share with, for people who struggle with that, because a lot of people do, what, what are some things that they can do to get better at, you know, pitching their ideas and influencing people who might have more senior positions than them? Yeah, so I think, sorry, sorry, Kevin. 
I, I just think that Adam's stealing this because someone asked it on, on LinkedIn today for the mentorship event. He's going to steal your answer oh, for Wednesday, isn't he? <laughs> that's okay. That too. That's, totally that's fine. not why I asked it, but, but I'll take that extra benefit. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, look, I think firstly, we, 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 it, it, it's, it's a lot about the way we view ourselves, right? So I think we first have to have the confidence that we have value to add. Um, we really, uh, we, we, we are the experts in this. I'll, I like to use the, excuse me, the analogy of uh, doctors. I believe doctors are the, the best salespeople in the world because when you enter into a doctor's practice, they conduct the analysis, right? They poke, prod, take temperatures, ask you questions about your diet. Um, and after that diagnostic journey that they've gone with you, they prescribe something. You grab that piece of paper and you walk out. Maybe I'm revealing my age by the piece of paper. It's probably digital. <laughs> but uh, you take the prescription and you walk out and you go and take everything on that prescription, right? Have you ever walked into a doctor's practice and told the doctor what you want? Um, uh, yeah, doctor, I feel like this. Please give me that. That never happens. But it seems that that's okay in the learning profession. You know, we've got leaders of the business that come and tell us, hey, I've got, you know, uh, 50 leaders. Uh, they need uh, training in communication. Make that happen. And we accept that. So um, all too often we accept that. So I think it's firstly having that conviction that we, um, that we, we have real solutions uh, for business. But secondly, I think we also need to understand that we're not going to be given a seat at the table. Um, like, you know, a, a, a lot in business, especially at a leadership level, is very contentious. Uh, everyone's fighting for ground. You know, we're fighting for budget. We're fighting for influence. Th that power dynamic in business is, is central to business. So we've got to understand that no one will give us uh, a seat at the table. We've got to contend for it. We've got to put in strong arguments, viable arguments, and they've got to be commercial in nature. So instead of trying to talk learning language to the business, we need to speak business language to the business. Um, and another analogy that I always use is, is, you know, hide the broccoli in the sauce, hide, hide the veggies in the, in, 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 in the sauce. Um, I, I'm of African origin uh, back in my childhood growing up in Africa. Uh, my mom hid all the vegetables I didn't like in a very delicious sauce. And I think we should do that as learning professionals. We know what we have in the sciences, but we need to learn business language and start speaking in numbers, start speaking in, in, in the language that business understands to, to earn that seat um, uh, at the table. And uh, yeah, so that's why I really love the performance consulting side of things, because we're really now looking more closely at solving business problems, adding business, uh, business value and, uh, and responding to business needs in, in language they understand. I hope that answers your question. Oh, it does. And and I just find it funny that that Kuva said that I was going to steal the answer from you, but I feel like you listened to my episode because I was talking about these same things as we have to earn that seat at the table. And also, oh, I think, wow. I, I think you, you mentioned some good stuff there about like, let's prove the results, right? If, if you can go to a leader and you can help them perform better then all the other leaders around them are going to be like, well, what happened over here? I want to do what this, this person did. It, and, and it's, uh, you're exactly right, Adam. It's, um, it's, it's a difficult process, but it is a process. It's a difficult journey, but it is a journey. And you will always have resistance when you start off. And a lot of times 
business leaders will challenge you. The thing is, when we get challenged, we 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 sometimes a bit too timid and we back down. Okay, 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 I'll just do that. Um, and that's why I feel it's a contention because you know, in that in that first contention, when you prove the business value, when they come to you with the pre-prescribed solution in mind. And you contend for it and say, no, 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 we're actually not going to do e-learning. We're going to conduct an analysis. We're going to develop some personas of the people of what's really going uh, going on there. And that's why in our eMERGE model, the illicit phase, we, uh, Kuva often mentions that it's the most important stage because that's reflectant of the contention that we need to have as a function because that's where we really want to understand the problem. What's the business problem uh, underpinning this? What, what's the analysis that we need to do? Are we Do we need to um, um, maybe look at a practice-based approach where we're looking at the attributes of a practice as opposed, as opposed to an attribute of an, uh, of an individual? There are many times we try and train uh, out problems that are not training problems. So we have to contend there. And when we get that win, when you convert that first leader that was contending with you, that your approach actually delivered a business result, a better business result than they imagined, you now have an advocate because they now become um, you know, endorsers of your methods. And that's how we earn that seat at the table because now we've said, no, we're not going to go with what you're saying. We're going to follow a scientific and an evidence-based approach to deliver a business outcome that has a longer legacy than just uh, you know, a simple intervention that solves the symptom and not the root cause. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, I, I don't necessarily blame those leaders because there's a long track record of uh, training and L&D teams that, that really didn't perform or didn't provide those results. So I think a lot of people might be used to that, right? I ask you for course, yeah. you give me course. And yes. so it, you're right that we have to like over overcome that, um, I guess that preconceived notion that they have and, and prove to them that we can do more than just give some information or help people to learn something like that. I always think learning's a mean to the end. It's not the end result. That's right. That's right. And I know we, we briefly mentioned the myth busting that you've done. Um, but just for anyone in the audience that hasn't heard about it, you know, a lot of us have seen these uh, LND models for years and they'll always ascribe certain percentages and very hard, fast numbers to how people learn or how people don't learn. And um, a lot, of, I, I know I've been guilty of this too. I used to train uh, other trainers, like certified trainers, and we used to teach some of these models. So let's start off with what is the biggest LND myth that just really bothers you the biggest <laughs> there's multiple yeah, i know if you have to pick one <laughs> um look i mean i wouldn't say that um there's necessarily any myth that really bothers me because i think you know the fact is all myths have got some level of truth in them so um i, I guess the thing that bothers me is not the myth itself but the way that people um present it um, as being accurate and factual when it's actually not. So um, one of them is, is about learning styles. Um, so I guess the reason why that, that bothers a lot of people um, in the learning industry is because it's, it's essentially putting people in boxes. Like how can you possibly say that one, people, one person learns visually and another person learns verbally? 
So does that mean that if I have a conversation with you on the on the phone, then you know I'm not going to learn anything out of that conversation? Uh, that there's a whole cohort of people who literally can't have phone calls. I, I, it just it seems a bit ridiculous to me. Or like that you know that you're an auditory person, so therefore uh, you shouldn't actually use use a Windows based computer. You should just listen to everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, Hands on's so, not lear- not needed for auditory learners, right? Exactly. Yeah. So uh, in this case, like it just it's a little bit ridiculous. It's been disproven. On the other hand, there's things that we can take out of that as well that are truthful, which is that, um, you know, having different modalities of learning. So, you know, having it visually represented on the screen um, so that you can input the information visually as well as verbally. Um, So it has been proven that you've got two sides of the brain and that by having both of those modalities that you will actually remember better. Um, so you've got like this, you know, dual coding theory that you can look into um, and uh, and that will be helpful. So again, like the myth has got some element of truth in it and we need to explore the elements of truth as well. Um, I think, it, yeah, another one is about, um, the learning styles, uh, sorry, not learning styles. Um, what was the other one? Um, it was a couple, <laughs> a couple of months ago now when I pushed that out. So I know um, I've seen you do like the forgetting curve. Um, oh, I know yeah, there's the been forgetting some forgetting curve. Yeah, there's that been some the pu- one pyramids that... <laughs> you've you've like taken down too. Yeah, so the forgetting curve. Um, I, I think the big thing about that one is it it's about the study itself. So the fact that it's based on Ebbinghauser, it was. I don't know, 100 years old or something. And the um, the idea is that, you know, you've got this curve of forgetting, which it sounds really nice. I mean, it's very appealing having like this nice little curve that you can measure. But um, the reality is that curve is based on a sample size of one, which is himself. And that uh, what he was actually remembering was, um, was not... Uh, you know, information that was meaningful to him. It was a bunch of random numbers. So, I mean, who's good at remembering random numbers? Not very many people. Um, I won't say no one, but there's not very many people. Most people like to attach information to things that are important, which, you know, it goes back to constructivism, right? So you, the learner is at the centre of what they're learning and um, they've got a bunch of meta structures in their mind. And as they encounter a new piece of information they're then assimilating it into what they know they're they're attaching it to what they know so that's why you know as we teach um and as as we frame information we want to try and you know create those scenario based examples um we want to try and um frame it up based on what they already know and also tap into their emotions um, and create those experiences for the learner so that it can actually help them to remember. And I'm sure that redoing that uh, forgetting curve with a bunch of information that had different levels of context for the learner or different levels of emotional um, in, uh, attachment or you know, effect would definitely change the result as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well. First off, before I touch on some of those things, I'm, I'm stealing a quote from you that all myths have some level of truth in them. I mean, that, that's not just true for these L&D myths. I mean, 
you, you look at ancient human myths that we know that a lot of these or most all of them are not historically accurate, but those stories still have things we can learn from them and things that we can benefit. And those societies had those myths because they taught lessons to the people in those societies that they found benefit from. So I love that quote, yeah. but, but your myths that you busted, I mean, the, the learning styles, I, I tend to not learn from audio, but audio distracts me at the same time. So I'm not necessarily, you know, by those old categories, I'm not necessarily an auditory learner, but if there's like someone talking while I'm trying to learn, it totally ruins mm. me. I need, I need some headphones on. So I, I like that point. We need them all. We, it's not like, it's not like a gospel. We don't necessarily fall this to a T, but there's some, some truth in it. Charles, were you going to say something on that? No, I was, I was, I was laughing because, um, reminds me when I was studying for my A-levels, uh, uh, back as a kid, uh, the whole house had to be silent. Uh, <laughs> so it's just so I could study. I could not have a sound. My brother was mad at me because he couldn't watch TV. My sisters couldn't chat away. Yeah. I, uh, audio just distracts me as well. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I was laughing at. Yeah. yeah. I'm a big fan of like having headphones on when I'm concentrating yeah. and having like instrumental music or something like that. Cause that helps me to, to focus. Um, but not everyone's like that. So everyone's a little different. And I think, I think that's the point you were, you're making there Kuva. Um, and, and I think when you talk about the forgetting curve, um, yeah, maybe there's some val validity to over time we forget things. Yeah, sure. Um, but man, I can remember stuff when I was five years old because I had a lot of emotional context with it. I can remember where I was at my grandma's house and the smells that were coming from her kitchen and exactly what happened that day. And I don't think of it that often, but it was so ingrained in my brain that this many years later, man, that curve didn't really affect that memory because it was very important to me. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think as also with the forgetting curve, uh, what I've read um, is that there's been some more recent studies done and um, the studies that have a lot more validity are actually about space repetition. So it's about, you know, making sure that you uh, refresh that memory um, on a regular basis, which is why, um, you know, you have those courses where it's not one day of learning you do a little bit and then you know a week later you do a little bit more learning so that allows you to you know slowly build that knowledge yeah and and unfortunately i have to move us to the next topic due to time but i mean i'm sure we could probably talk about things like micro learning and maybe myths around that or where it's good but i want to keep us going because i i really want to get to um the the company that you you guys run which is emergent learning and and what you're doing so um, Charles, maybe you want to kick us off. What is emergent learning, and and what are you what are you doing there? Yeah, sure, sure. So uh, I think where the the central uh, tenet to how we came about was our passion for the learning sciences and evidence based uh, approaches, but set in the context of solving business problems and realizing business opportunities. So what we're what we're essentially uh, looking to 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 achieve is an organizational improvement outcome, which may contain elements of capability uplift. It may contain elements of learning design, but we're really looking at the at the specific business context and how to navigate that journey in partnership with our clients to to bring about uh, those results. So it's a true consultative uh, engagement that um, uh, that that we really thrive in. You know, I, I don't know if I caught this when I was first familiar with your organization, but you're, you're combining like the, 
science and the, the theories behind learning with the performance. And, and unfortunately, I see in this industry, those things are kind of separated all too much. I, I tend to be a little bit more performance focused. And I see far too many learning professionals that are only focus, focused on like the models and the science, and they don't think as much about performance. And I, I love that you're, you're merging those two. Um, so Kuva, um, tell us about the Emerge model. So this is the model that you use to work with companies and provide solutions. Sure. Um, so we felt that there were not enough uh, learning models out there already. No, not enough at all. <laughs> so we decided to come up with our own. <laughs> um, so look, I mean, the, the main reason that we've come up with our own is because we did, we, we wanted to extend what, um, what the learning model actually offers. Um, and we wanted to be able to take the good bits of the existing models, but also add on to them. Um, so the, the Emerge model starts with Elicit, um, as Charles mentioned earlier in the conversation. Uh, Charles, do you wanna describe that? Yeah, and uh, as, as I pointed to earlier, you know, that's this stage really is the most critical stage because that's where we're looking at the at the analysis and the research methods that we um, that we want to apply to to getting to the root cause of uh, the problem or the 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 foundational elements of the opportunity we're trying to to realize. So we we, we want to work with the content experts. The, the relevant stakeholders and subject matter experts to, to really analyze the current business state and the business needs and determine those gaps and pain points um, of, of what they have that's existing um, and interrogate, interrogate that from the, from the perspective as somewhere under here, there's, there's a root business problem and there's a pathway into, uh, uh, into realizing that better, the, the, that better state or the uh, uh, sort of outcome that we're looking for. Um, and that, you know, it, it consists of a number of ways that we can, um, uh, that we can conduct that analysis. You know, it's, it's a blend of tried and, 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 and tested methodologies as well as, uh, you know, uh, leveraging a, human, a more human-centered design approach so that we can, you know, elicit that optimal learning experience as well as the desired uh, business uh, benefit. So, we can also look at practice-based approaches, like I said, where we're looking more at uh, the attributes of the practice as opposed to the attributes of uh, the individual. There, there are many times where you can uh, believe that the issues live in individuals, whereas they are material, economic, or you know, uh, social, political, or cultural discursive arrangements that are actually enabling or constraining the particular phenomena that you're looking to address. So that illicit stage is really critical. Awesome. Um, well, uh, the next stage after that illicit or analysis type stage, um, Kuva, do you want to take the next step? Uh, sure. So from there, um, this is where I really start to jump in. Obviously, you know, the learning designers are always going to be um, up in that illicit phase as well. Um, so uh, as we get into the, the model phase, that's where we're, we're looking at basically the solution design, but at a really high level. So, you know, building out what are, what is the curriculum, what are the courses or the learning program. Um, we also, as, as Charles briefly mentioned, are looking at uh, capability uplift as well. So if we're looking at it from a capability perspective, during illicit, we might have gone in and looked at, you know, what's the capability gap, um, uh, you know, the, and then, from there in the model phase, we're actually looking at, okay, uh, for, given this gap, 
um, what are the what are the skills that are required and um, what are the what are the courses or um, what's the program that's going to address that gap? We then, so then we move into um, experiment, which is where um, we start actually building the fun bit, <laughs> the bit we all as learning designers like, right? Um, but we try and do it in a way that we'll start by just building that prototype, right? Um, so we actually, you know, stand something up for them to touch and feel and be able to, you know, interact with, um, make sure, making sure that we've got the content right. Um, we then move into the refined phase, which is where we start to pilot uh, that particular learning design solution. Um, and um, as part of the pilot, we, we want to make sure, you know, by, by going through this entire phase, if the uh, you know, if the organisation we're working with is signed up to the entire phase, they've also signed up to um, that pilot evaluation and update as part of that phase. So we're not just going to, you know, drop a course on them. Here you go. <laughs> SMEs have signed it off. They say everything's good. But when it, you know, when the participants actually go through it, it's not meeting the mark for, from a learning perspective. So that's where, you know, that pilot was super critical to actually make sure that it's resonating with our learners and that they, they're getting what they need out of it. Um, that's kind of where usually a lot of learning models stop. But we want to keep going. <laughs> so the next bit is um, the grow phase. So, you know, we've done a pilot, we've delivered the piece of content, great. But we want to make sure that it's actually going to get embedded properly within the organisation. So, you know, do we need to help the organisation with uh, change management techniques, setting up a change champion program, um, you know, building out a train-the-trainer model? Like there's a number of things that could happen at that point to make sure that we can actually grow what we're delivering across the organisation. And then the final step is evolve. So once we've uh, dropped, dropped this course onto the LMS, uh, I don't want to... By the way, course, um, you know, e-learning courses are just one of the many things that we do. Um, so <laughs> all of our learning solutions is a whole nother conversation, but I'll say course for now. Um, once we drop this course onto the LMS, um, we don't want to let it sit there and die, which is what happens sadly to a lot of e-learning courses out there. Someone spent a lot of time and energy and hard work and it looks beautiful. But it's, you know, it's like sitting up at the top of a dusty shelf, not getting any love. So, you know, the next phase, the evolved phase, is actually looking at, okay, uh, 12 months from now, is, is this course getting used? Um, if it's not, why isn't it getting used? If it is, is there a way that we could make this even better? Maybe we, we say, oh, well, this is a great e-learning course but we should actually follow it up with a bit of, you know, activity-based training to supplement what we're doing here. Um, so the evolve phase is taking all the hard work and then taking it one step further. Mm. And it's respecting the, the dynamic nature of business in this, you know, VUCA environment where the volatility of, of, of business is, is just the norm, you know, things change so rapidly. And I think as learning professionals, sometimes we, um, we, we, we're not really respecting the timeliness element of 
of, of business. Business is too dynamic these days and change is too fast. If in our solution design, our solution will only be ready in 12 months, the business context will have changed so rapidly in that time. And sometimes we, we give those sorts of uh, timelines. That's why we need more iterative approaches that more match the dynamic nature and change of business. And because things are not constant, that evolved stage is also critical because what are we going to do m further to embed this, to bring, you know, to bring it back to the fore? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think I got slapped in the face with that when I started working for a startup and the whole company operated in this agile sprint based, you know, deliver in two weeks approach. And I was used to the old L&D model and, you know, you had months to deliver a solution. So Charles, that's a great point. You know, we, we have to be faster. And then to what you mentioned, Kuva, I love those last two steps because we have to keep things evergreen. Uh, if, if a training solution is a one-time event, what kind of business results is that really going to provide versus ensuring that it's providing long-lasting change and long-lasting impact rather than just adding to a learning catalog that no one's going to ever use after the initial rollout. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, um, I, I feel like we could probably keep going on this forever, but Ku, I, I know we have short time here. So um, let's let's get towards the, the last couple of beats here. So uh, I'll put this stuff in the show notes, but um, Charles, let me go to you first. Where can people find you if they want to connect with you and learn more? You can find me on LinkedIn, Charles Masuku. Um, I'm uh, always on uh, LinkedIn, not as much as Kuva, but uh, she's uh, she's whipping me into shape about that. Um, I, I love the conversations that happen there. And so, yeah, we'll be engaging a lot more there, but definitely on LinkedIn. Um, on our website, uh, www.emergentlearning.com.au. That .au is important. Um, we're based in Australia. Um, and Charles Masuku at, on, on, on Twitter. Um, I'm looking to increase my engagement there as well. There's always some interesting conversations. But uh, the best place really is on LinkedIn. Uh, Kuga and I are always active and responding to people on that. So Awesome. Yeah, I'll put both your socials and the website um, on, on the show notes. Kuba, what about you? Where can people find you? Yeah, same. Definitely on LinkedIn. Feel free to drop by, connect with me, send me a message. Um, I'm always around and open to connect as well. Awesome. Great. Well, I'll, I'll make sure I include all that. Um, but before we go, I, I, I always ask every guest this question and, and no pressure of what it is, but just what's one thing, either personal or professional, that you've learned recently that you think has been a benefit to you? Charles, you want to go first? What's something you've learned lately? Um, I've, I've learned that um, if, if you want to speak to more people, you've got to listen to more people. That, 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 that simple lesson has, has really, really served me well. That's some sage advice. Thank you. Kuba, what about <laughs> you? What's something you've learned lately that's been a benefit? I'm going to go completely right afield. Um, in the last two years, I actually started probably during the lockdowns. Um, I started learning aerial silks um, with my two daughters. And it's been an amazing journey because um, I, I learn a lot about how we learn as well. Um, because it's not just myself, it's also my children. So um, our coach is very strict. She uh, basically qualified for gymnastics, like the national gymnastics team when she was young. And then she went on to be um, in equivalent of Cirque du Soleil. It's called House of the Moving Water. So it's, it's an amazing international show. So she brings all of this weight of 
if you want to be really good, you have to actually be disciplined and you have to try hard and you have to push through and you have to be resilient and you have to have the right mindset. And all of these amazing traits she's passing on to me and my two daughters and, um, you know, watching them go through this. Um, she, she, she doesn't have, like, my youngest daughter's six and she started when she was four and my, my teacher doesn't really think about age and, you know, at six you should be doing this or that. She's just like, you know, you want to be good, you gotta, you got to do 10 leg lifts and you got to do this, you got to do that. And she's constantly pushing us. And, uh, like, I'm very grateful for that because um, I, I think that that resilience and that mindset is incredibly important in life as well. That's awesome. Yeah, taking life skills from outside of work stuff and bringing those to work. I, I think that's great. Um, well, I know our time's up. So Kuva, Charles, it was great having you both on. Thank you both for joining the show. Thank you so much. <laughs> Everyone at home, we'll see you next time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time. See ya. Bye.